Today's episode of The Debrief will discuss the Breonna Taylor case, which has become a flashpoint in the movement to defund and reform law enforcement. There's obviously a great deal of press that has already occurred about this incident. Our goal is not to rehash everything that has been published. Rather, we're going to try to look at the case from the perspective of an individual officer whose life and career were destroyed by this case. In preparation for this conversation, I read everything I could find about the case. I read the official reports, the news accounts, looked at every picture and video I could get my hands on, and talked to numerous people about the incident. Several things became clear during my investigation. One, the media reports about the incident were wildly inaccurate initially, and although they have gradually become more accurate, they left most of us with a very inaccurate perception about what happened that night. Two, that like any tragedy, it was not a single action or actor that created the situation. Rather, it was a complex chain of acts that resulted in the situation spiraling out of control. Three, that although there were several specific things in Louisville that laid the foundation for this, it is not difficult to see how this could have happened to any police department in the United States in a similar situation. As a result, our goal today is to try to gather lessons learned that may help other agencies and their officers to prevent this from happening to them and to hopefully set the record straight on several misconceptions about the case. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. My guest today is John Mattingly. John is a retired sergeant from the Louisville Police Department who led the search warrant service at the home of Breonna Taylor on March 13, 2020, and was shot in the leg by her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, before returning fire with another officer, resulting in the death of Ms. Taylor. This event, of course, became a huge catalyst for protests, riots, lawsuits, death threats against the officers, and tragically, the shooting of two more officers while responding to the multi-day civil unrest that followed. It has also led to three of the officers involved in obtaining the search warrant, as well as one of the officers involved in the raid, being charged with federal crimes. John has recently written a book called 12 Seconds in the Dark that documents the facts of this case from his perspective and discuss the numerous issues that have not been discussed in the media. John, thanks for being here. I really appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, man, I'm glad to be here. So why don't we start with kind of your background and career? Like walk me through, you know, John's evolution as a cop. All right, so I came on in June of 2000. And uh, when I came on, I went naturally at most cops to, to late watch or graveyard shift, midnight to eight. Uh, did that until 2005, September 2005. I went to what's called a flex unit. It's kind of like a narcotics unit inside of each of our, one of our eight divisions. And um, I did that until 2009, September 2009, so right at four years. And that's when I got promoted to sergeant. I uh, wasn't going to take the test, but my, my boss at the time looked at me and she said, man, are you seeing all these people that are getting promoted? And I was like, yeah. She said, bunch of idiots, aren't they? I'm like, heck yeah, they are. She said, do you want to work for them or do you want to work with them? I went, good point. I guess I'll take the test. 
So I took it, uh, got promoted on September 11th of 2009 and um, went back to late watch for a year. And my body couldn't stand it because at that time I was a little bit older. I didn't come on until I was 27. So, you know, here I am uh, nine years in at this point and kids running around the house, couldn't get any sleep. So I did that for a year. And then in 20, I guess, 2010, I went to a detective sergeant position, did that for a year and a half. Uh, we took everything except uh, business robberies and homicides, everything else we did. Um, enjoyed it, got to learn a lot, but at the same time, just wasn't my speed. Uh, missed the adrenaline, missed the, the jump out on people, all that. So I uh, went back to the flex unit um, as a sergeant. That only lasted about six months, and the crime in Louisville just kept going up and up and up. And so they put together with a violent crime unit called Viper. And uh, the guy who was starting that unit called me and said, hey, will you come be one of my sergeants? And I liked the guy, but I didn't want to work for him. One of those guys. Yeah. Super smart, but always let you know how smart he was, all that stuff. Yeah. Great cop. But I was like, no, I'm good. He cussed me out, hung up the phone. Um, had some of the guys that were going to go to that unit that he had kind of handpicked, kind of work on me, work on me, work on me. So a couple of weeks later, he called me back. I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. So went to do that. And, and from 2012 to the end of 2015, I did that. And best time of my career. It was the busiest, the hardest I've ever worked, but most fun I have had and, and just had more uh, positive results. You know, it wasn't just dope. It was getting guns and, and murders and carjackers and all that stuff off the street almost in real time. Because uh, the guys that worked for me, were, I mean, they're much better detective than I ever was. And, and they knew how to round people up on social media. And within hours of shootings and homicides, we were grabbing these guys up. And so it was a good time. Um, and then new command came in. The department kind of changed everything up in that unit. Wasn't what it was before. Turned into some kind of PR thing for the city. I said, this ain't me. I'm out. And uh, I bounced from that unit. Went back to a flex unit as a sergeant for about a year. Um, and then I went to our major narcotics unit in 2017 and was there until the time of the incident in 2020. So over the course of your career, how many, you know, you worked narcotics for quite a few years. How many warrants do you think you served? Oh, around 2000. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an active narco unit that's doing a lot of, a lot of warrants. Yeah. I mean, there were days, there were days we were doing three and four warrants, you know, we just piggyback one off the other onto the next, onto the next and work, you know, 14, 16 hours. So very busy, very proactive. Good time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the, you know, the incident. It, but first let's start with the warrant. Why did Louisville PD seek a warrant for Brianna Taylor's apartment? All right. Well, a a new unit had been formed in January of 2020. It was called the place-based investigation. It was from a pilot program out of Cincinnati that specifically targeted individuals within the city. Like you would take somebody who had um, a bunch of complaints or was a repeat offender who was a nuisance and they would pinpoint that person and that was going to be their only target until they wrapped up a good case on them and prosecuted. Then they would move to the next. Unlike most units that have, you know, 10, 12 things going at one time, they were all the, the entire unit was going to focus on these one problems and just kind of knock them off one by one. Were those problems people-based or the place-based would imply its location? Right. Mainly community-based. Um, now, come to find out, we think it was the mayor's way of gentrifying this community because on Elliott Avenue, which is where uh, the main target and where, where the two of the warrants were served that night, there were two re- residences left on this street that the city had not uh, retained uh, control over. 
So were yeah. they like eminent domaining the houses? Well, no, they were going in. Some of them eminent domain, but a, a lot of them they were using uh, where you would go in if you had more than three citations on that location within six months, the city could actually come in and take your property. Or at least they could shut it down until you went through court. Uh, they had bought most of the properties for about a dollar a piece was what <laughs> what they were doing from these people. So they basically were strong-arming them. Um, you know, because it was in a lower income in community, and so you had a lot of poor people. So these houses were 95% rental houses. So you had these landlords just renting to people, and and the city would come in and go, oh, you had these violations, whether it be the gutters down, dope sold from the house, all these different things they could use to obtain these properties. Well, come to find out in 2018 or 2017, the city had had drawings already written up and done for this area where they were going to put in a fountain and new buildings and a walking area and all this stuff. To, all all to, the standard gentrified uh, right. yoga shop. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, place that sells fancy ice cream. Yeah, just and totally changed this part of the communities. It was the goal. But they couldn't get rid of these two houses. They were painting their side. And I've actually got a map that was given to me by somebody from the inside that showed all the X'd out houses they had and the two they needed. And it was the two that they happened to be doing these warrants on. Interesting. Yeah, very, very big coincidence. So the main target, Jamarcus Glover, uh, he's a guy from Mississippi, had several felonies down there. At the time of this warrant, he had five or six open pending felony cases in Jefferson County, which is Louisville, uh, all for drugs and guns. So he's a repeat offender, repeat offender, kept letting him out. Well, in January of 2020, he got locked up. Some buddies of mine from another unit had done a warrant on the same house on Elliott. Got Jamarcus Clever. I think it was seven guns. Four of them were rifles, three pistols, some heroin, cocaine, different things like that. Brianna Taylor bailed him out of jail. And she used her address as his. When they pulled all the records for the for the uh, for Jamarcus Clever, everything came back to Brianna's house. His car was registered there. His phone was registered there. His bank account was at her house. Uh, she bailed him out and used that address as his. So everything pointed to Brianna Taylor's apartment. As maybe where he's living or at least, you know, right. adjacent to him, so to speak. Correct. And during the course of this, this three-month investigation, they have videos of him going in empty-handed, coming out with packages, going straight to the tra- trap house uh, on Elliott from her house on Springfield. Uh, they had pole cams up on Elliot. They had trackers on his car, pings on his phone. Um, so they knew that occasionally he was going to Brianna Taylor's house and then leaving. There's a couple of times she actually drove him down to the trap house and they have her on video down there. So that tied her to them. Uh, the whole purpose of going to her apartment that night wasn't for Jamarcus Clover, like, like everybody says on the news. We, they knew where he was. And, and again, this was originally signed as a no-knock because of Jamarcus, because of his criminal history. And once they figured out he was not going to be at that location due to the surveillance, when we were at the briefing that night, they said, it's signed as a no-knock, but we're going to do a knock and announce because it no longer fits the parameters. So in that case, they were doing the right thing because what they had presented to the judge no longer met those those parameters anymore. And so they they bumped it back to a knock and announce. So the, the idea of the no-knock is basically if, in fact, it's the location where he is, he's probably armed. Correct. He's run from the police before. Yeah, you're going to go in quick and, and take him into custody. Correct. Okay, let's go back for one second, though. So she, Brianna Taylor, is his girlfriend at that at, at this point? or Not in was 2020. One point? Yeah, off and on for about seven years. Uh, they've been boyfriend and girlfriend, broken up, gotten together, broken up, gotten together. Um, but so but it, there's, I mean, there's a relationship between the two of them correct. that is, is well documented. And it's still current, yes. And 
he's using her address to, you know, to receive things and, and using it almost as a home address. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's typical in the drug trade. And, you know, a lot of your listeners will understand that, that these guys don't put things in their name. They put it in girlfriends, baby mamas, whoever's grandma's name. It doesn't matter. They use their location to spread out their drugs and money uh, because if the police hits one place, hopefully they'll miss the other spot. Yeah. And uh, later we found out from jail phone calls that Brianna was in fact holding Jamarcus Glover's money that night and other drug dealers in, in their little organization. And uh, Jamarcus Glover's girlfriend got mad at him. It's all on jail rec- phone calls of, you know, why is she holding your money? He's like, well, she's holding everybody's money. It's just what she does. So she was definitely tied into it. I don't think, I don't think she was out there slinging the dope herself. Um, but I, but she knew of the organization. She knew what was going on. Yeah. I mean, like best case scenario, she's just dirt bag adjacent. Right. Um, and there was something about a rental car too, right? Yeah. In 2017, um, she rented a car. A few days later, there was a body found in the trunk that had been shot. Um, that case has never been solved. That person was tied to the organization of Jamarcus Clover, uh, somebody they knew. Uh, when the police asked her about it, she just simply said, I don't know what happened to the car. It got stolen or so you, took it. Yeah, so you can see where if you're a judge and you're presented with this with a warrant for her house, um, you know, with supporting affidavits, you're going to grant a search warrant to right. go search the house because worst case scenario, Jamarcus Glover's there. Best case scenario, you may find drugs, money, property. Correct. Et cetera. Okay. So, so it's a different unit that does the workup on this. It's the place-based investigations unit that's, that does the workup on this. When do you first get word of the warrant? So this is kind of the tricky part. So in January, when they first begin this, this case, um, at this point I'd moved from our major case division over to our parcel interdiction unit where we took packages from UPS, FedEx, the lead detective came to me and said, hey, can you look up this address, 3003 Springfield, number four, and see if Jamarcus Glover has any packages coming there? Well, I knew from experience that even if he were having packages sent there, it's not going to be in his name. They always use some crazy fake name so they can have, you know, plausible deniability. Yeah. And if it shows up and the girl has it, she can go, this ain't mine. Look at the name on it. You know, I have no idea whose it is. This happens all the time. And we've done several reverses that way where we've locked people up or we've delivered the package and then and gone in and done the warrant. So he comes to me and he says, hey, can you look up this address? I said, who's it through? He says, through the Postal Service. I said, well, Josh, we have zero connection with the Postal Service. Because a couple of years before I came to this unit, the Postal Inspector and LMPD got into a big, you know, uh, pissing contest, to say it nicely. And and they took their ball and went home, and we no longer dealt with them. I didn't have any connections with them, didn't even know them, never met them. So when he came to me and said that, I said, I don't know who, I don't know anything about that, but I know who does. I knew the, the smaller department, Shively Police Department, which is one of the small ancillary departments around there, they had picked up with Postal because they also had a little uh, unit that went out and did this stuff. So I reached out to him, texted him right there while he's standing next to me, and I said, hey, do you have anything on Springfield in Jamarcus Glover's name? He said, Man, I don't know about Springfield, but we do have a, a Jay Glover. I can't remember the first name that we just got a package off of. He said, I'll get back with you. I showed Josh the text, exchanged their phone numbers, thought I was done with it. A couple weeks later, I'm at UPS pulling packages, and I see one of the detectives from Shively, and I said, hey, man, did you all ever figure out that, that thing I texted you about last week about Glover or a couple weeks ago? And he said, yeah, me and Kelly Goodlett, who was the other the code." 
co-lead on this case. He said, she called me. We were talking about it. We were comparing vehicles of the two Glovers. Figured out it's a different Glover. There's just like a Jason Glover, and this was Jamarcus Glover. So just kind of a weird coincidence, uh, but a different Glover. They knew that at that point. I said, cool, no problem. Not my case. Don't really care. Yeah. Didn't mean that in a bad way, but we're so busy. Don't have time to keep track of other people's cases. The next day, I'm in the office. Josh is walking by me, and I stop him and say, hey, man, did you hear? They've got It's a different Glover. There's no packages. He said, yeah, man, Kelly told me. I was hoping to j- just do a rip reversal. Now we got to write all these warrants. Sorry, dude. Went on our way. That's, that's the last I thought I was going to hear of it. In March, first week of March, we get an email sent to all of Narcotics saying we've got a, a, uh, a multi-warrant simultaneous uh, that's coming up that we, that we need bodies on, manpower intensive. They sent out the addresses, Elliott Avenue, Elliott Avenue, Muhammad Ali, uh, another address down in our urban area, West End, where it's super ghetto. And then, then they had the one on Springfield. Well, at this point, I had erased Springfield from my mind. And it also it didn't have Jamarcus Glover's name on it. It had Breonna Taylor's. So I'm not putting two, to, two and two together at this point because in parcel interdiction, we're doing 40, 50 warrants a week that I've got to go through and approve. And if it's not a case we're actively working, you just flush that info and you move to the next one. I'm not sure. that smart or I'd do something different besides be a cop. Sure. So when they send that out, I look at the addresses and I'm like, man, I can help that night because it's overtime. Who doesn't like overtime? But I don't want to be down the ghetto. I've done this for years. I've been down there so much. I don't want to dig through a nasty trap house. Um, I don't want to deal with the crowds. I said, give me the, if you give me the apartment, I'll help out. And so their sergeant sent back and said, fine, you got it. So two weeks later, we come in for the brief. Um, and that's, that's when we go in and I see the no knock, no knock, and then knock and announce on the board for, for Springfield. So how many warrants were being simultaneously served that night? They had five signed. They were going to do three at the same time, as long as they had him in custody, and then go to the next two because one was, uh, I think, mom's house and one or a uh, girlfriend's house, and then the actual baby mama's house. So, and this is arrest warrants and search warrants. No, simple search warrants. Simple search. Yeah. Okay. So, so the three locations that they decide they're going to hit, two of them are on Elliot Elliot Avenue, and the other one is Brianna Taylor's apartment. Correct. Okay. So you get tasked with Taylor's apartment. Yes. So your warrant is a no-knock warrant. Signed that way, yes. Signed as a no-knock, mm-hmm. which which was done so that if Jamarcus Glover was there, you had the capability to go in and execute it no-knock. Correct. But at the point that you get handed the warrant, they've already determined that he's on Elliot. Right. And he's that's where his phone is pinging. And, and like, you know, everything's pointing to that's where he is. Right. And- the phrase they used, and I specifically remember this, was we're going after this house for documents and money. Possible dope. We don't think there's any there, but possible. Um, they said she's a heavyset black female. Give her extra time to come to the door. Because generally, on a knock and announce, you're 10 seconds at the door, then you're going through. So they asked us to give her extra time um, initially to keep the neighbors out of it because they were hoping she'd jump on the team. And, you know, because she wasn't the target. You know, they were going after documents to tie Glover into this different organization where he had about five guys working for him. Yeah, the target of the investigation is Jamarcus Glover. Correct. She, she's just, uh, you know, an acquaintance. She's a peripheral. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so then um, you, get, you get the warrant. They decide it's not going to be a no-knock. Who's serving the other two warrants? SWAT serving both of those. Okay, so you have SWAT hitting two locations simultaneously. And you guys are doing the third location. Correct. We, we were on SWAT 
frequency. So when they said uh, we're unmounting here and heading in, that's when we were moving in. Got it. Simultaneous just to re, you know provide element of surprise and make sure somebody doesn't make a phone call and right. evidence gets destroyed and all yeah. that. But but your primary objective is is simply evidence against Jamarcus Lee. Yeah, the Jamarcus goal was Lee. not even to lock her up. That was never that was never relayed to us. That was never hey, we're getting her. She's going downtown. That's it. It was it was simply get in there. Let's find some evidence against Jamarcus. Then we can tie her in and, and maybe get her to flip. Got it. Okay, so talk to me about the the team you are assigned to execute this warrant. There were seven of us. I know all the guys, obviously, because they work in some facet in narcotics. Uh, one of the guys actually worked for me in parcel interdiction, so I'd served, and he was with me in Viper. So we had served multiple, multiple warrants over the years together. Um, there was another guy that used to work with me, but he was in the highway interdiction. We served some warrants together, not a lot. Um, and then I had a guy from a street platoon that I didn't serve many warrants with. I had occasionally, you know, here and there, because we were always plugging in bodies when you needed them. Um, had a guy from the place space unit that I'm not sure I've ever served a warrant with him, maybe one, but I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure on that. Then we had a Lieutenant who, you know, generally just doesn't come out for warrants, but with bodies needed, we had a Lieutenant on scene. So seven guys, six different units as a unit, these guys had never worked together. Correct. Like you worked with a couple of guys and a couple of guys in the unit might've worked with each other. But as a unit, you are, this is the first time you are together. Right. This isn't a team that normally went out and hit doors. Got it. And like, what's the experience level in this, in this seven guys? You've got a couple thousand more and you've been working a long time in narcotics. Um, is, is it a real wide variance in skill set? It depends on how you, how you put that. Because there's, there's guys that have had many years on but and even some of them in narcotics but they hadn't done a lot of of dynamic entry warrants um so you still had i think between the seven of us there was probably about 140 years of experience out there but in different areas like one guy had been a a beat guy his first 21 years and he'd only been in a specialty unit for a couple year and a half uh only done man one or two warrants that i know of so you had some guys that were pretty fresh to this, not fresh to being police officers, but fresh to being in this type of unit. And then other guys that had been in these units, but again, just hadn't worked, hadn't worked together. Yeah. They had the experience, but they, they just hadn't, hadn't been, you know, hadn't played the same team, right. so to speak. So, so in narcotics at this point, Louisville PD, and I suspect that this has changed now, but I mean, I hope it is. What is, when you come into an arc unit, what kind of training are you getting? <laughs> Uh, well, th- I mean, this has been a complaint for years. I don't care if you're going to homicide, narcotics, division detective. Uh, there's not a lot of, you know, you go to the old guys. Like it used to, when I first came on, the department was so old or filled with older guys, middle guys, and young guys that you had all that experience to lean on. And even if you weren't leaning on them, if you did something wrong, they were reaching out to you, smacking you upside the head, telling you what you're doing wrong. Well, as the department grew, or not grew, as the department actually shrunk, but as, as time went on, uh, the department got a lot younger, and as those old guys matriculated out, there wasn't a changing of the guard as far as, hey, we're bringing new guys in because we know these guys are they're gone in six months, so let's transfer this knowledge to the new guys. And every time a new crew came in, it was like recreating the wheel. So then you're it's back to the basics, starting all over, redigging in, and the training just wasn't very good. I mean, you'd have 
you know, send a guy to a week or two week narcotic school and that would be it. And, and, and in that school he may do two days of high risk entries. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's so much information in a week or two that you can't, you're not proficient at it. Well, and you, you and I talked about this earlier, but like it's, you know, narcotics as you're working it is, you know, 95% detective work. Right. And, and, and then there's this search warrant component. Yeah. So you've got to be good at, at handling informants, um, surveillance on following people. And then you've got this facet at the end that the, the carrot at the end of the stick of, of doing your entry and doing your search warrant and collecting your evidence. Got it. Okay. So, so you go to briefing, the decision's made that it's not going to be a dynamic warrant. You're going to do, you know, a, a knock and announce. Um, when do you first see the location? So when we went to our second secondary location to meet up after the main brief, everybody goes to their, their different areas where they're going to be meeting up, met up with EMS, met up with the guys. And I said, Hey, I'm going to go by this location. Cause the six of us that were out there, there was one guy on the eye who was watching the apartment. That guy was part of the place-based unit. So he knew what he was looking at. He knew what the investigation detail entailed, but us six over here knew nothing about it. And, and he's not leading the no, warrant. You're leading the warrant. I'm leading the warrant. He's Got simply it. the eye on it. Just tell us what's coming and going. Uh, you know, he knows what they look like in case they come in or out. So I'm like, man, I've got to go by and see this. You know, we don't have a true VO or verification officer. So I've got to at least go by and know what I'm going to. I don't want to hit the wrong door. You know, you don't want to do something stupid. So I go by and I'm on the phone with him and, and he, he directs me into the location of where it's at. So at least I got a vision of it. And, and these are eight plex apartments. You've got, they're actually 16 plex, but you've got in, they're split in two and you've got four units on the bottom, four units on the top. If you're looking directly at the apartment, it's a breezeway inset with a metal staircase on the right. You've got two doors on the back wall and then a door on the right and a door on the left that are kind of looking at each other. So all four apartments on the bottom open into the same common breezeway area. Correct. And, and two doors are facing you as you're walking up and two doors are on the sides. Right. And her door was the one on the right as you're walking up underneath the staircase. Okay. So you, you have to go around the staircase. Well, it's kind of offset to the right. So the, the middle of the walkway kind of leads you to the left of it. So you don't really have to go around it. You're walking right by. Yeah, you it. walk right past it. But you, when you when you go to her door, it's kind you're of overhanging right, it. and it's overhung by the staircase. Right, right. Got it. Okay, so you you go drive by and have a look. At it. And to go back, are you given any maps of the location, any floor plans, any any data in your briefing? No, it was pretty generic. It was like uh, you know the main emphasis was on Jamarcus Clover and Elliot uh, on those locations, and then. This was almost like a, man, like a secondary, like a side piece, if you would say. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're also doing this, so go do it and uh, see what you get. So SWAT had not scouted it? No. Place-based investigations? SWAT says they didn't even know we were doing it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And they were in a different briefing, I take it? Yes. So SWAT briefs at their office. We, we briefed it together because they've got, I don't know, 35 guys. They were using 40 guys. We had 40 on our end. Um, and... There's conflicting reports. Um, the guys in the unit say, no, when we went with SWAT a couple of weeks earlier to, to start this ball rolling, we told them about the location, told them what was going on. Apparently that wasn't relayed to their commanders. So they're saying it wasn't told. So it was, it was miscommunication from the start that kind of started this snowball. And, and as we talk, you'll see there's just been, it was, 
mistake after mistake. Yeah, well, and it's it's one of the things I say and said in the intro is like you know the, the problem with all these kinds of things is it's never one big blunder. Right. Right. It, it's a chain of events of sometimes seemingly inconsequential decisions, and sometimes you know people taking bad action, sometimes people doing what they think is the right thing, but but all of those little things add up to to lay the groundwork. Right. That's why I want to kind of, as we're walking through this, I want to talk through like, okay, well, what about this? What about this? So you go, you look at the location, drive by, figure out where the apartment is. The guy on the eye from the place, place investigations, I'm assuming is telling you like that, you know, that's the apartment. Yeah. There was a heating and cooling air van right in front of the breezeway. He said, when you get to that van, it's right there to the right bottom door on the right. So when I got there, I tapped my brakes. He said, that's it. So I, at least I knew what it looked like where we were going to. Got it. Is the apartment marked? Like, is there a, like an apartment number on number it four. or anything like that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And did you notice anything else when you did your drive by? Uh, I noticed the, that's the first time I noticed the bedroom light or the bedroom TV. You could see it flickering through her shades. So as you're looking at the front of the building, her apartment is on the front of the building. Correct. And to the right of the breezeway. To the right of the breezeway. And you're looking at the outside of the building. What do you see as far as windows and, and doors and stuff? So if we start at the breezeway to the right of it, there's a sliding glass door okay. and there's a little small um, wooden type fence blocking that off or going around it. So like a little courtyard or a little right. garden kind of yeah, area. Yeah, a little bitty area. Yeah. And to the right of that is the uh, secondary bedroom window. And then to the right of that is the main bedroom where the TV was on. Do you know that? Or do you know that now? I know it now. When I saw the TV flickering, and, and most apartments are laid out fairly similar. Sure. So I, in my mind, I kind of put two and two together and thought, well, that's probably the master bedroom where they're watching TV. Got it. Or where she is. Because we were told no kids, no dogs, uh, no boyfriends. That's that's the in- intel we had, just her. Yeah. And you and I joked about that earlier. Yeah. No house ever has kids, dogs, or guns. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they all seem to have kids, dogs, and guns. So- to, to go back to the apartment, if, if you're looking at the front, you've got the secondary bedroom, primary bedroom, little courtyard kind of garden area with, with sliding glass doors, just big windows, like like sliding windows or like normal windows on the two bedrooms. Yeah, they're normal windows, just to, to kind of go up. Got it. And those are covered with blinds, if I remember correctly. Yes. So you can't see in, you but can you just could, see that the TV's right. on. Yeah, you knew the TV was on, you could see it flickering through the shades. Got it. Okay, so then um, just to get one more detail about the layout of the apartment, when the front door opens mm-hmm. to the apartment, you're looking straight down a hallway, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah, about 30 feet down a hallway, you've got a, the, if you're looking through the door, the, the living room is on the right, the kitchenette is on the left, there's like a small dining room that leads into a small kitchen, okay. then there's a hallway right down the middle, a bathroom to the left, and then an insert inset to the right. In that inset are the, the opening to both bedroom doors. So the hallway is only about three feet wide, very narrow. And then at that first bedroom, the wall actually cuts inside. So it, it can give you uh, concealment, but not cover. Got it. If that makes sense. But the two bedrooms are opening off of a common alcove. Like it, 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 it's a wall until it dents in and the two bedrooms both open off that common Correct. space. Yes. Okay. So when you're looking down the hallway of the apartment... You know, we're standing at the front door. We look all the way down the hallway to the right and back is where her bedroom is. Correct. Okay. All right. So then um, you do your scout. You have a quick look. 
go back stage then what happens um swat calls and says they're en route and then as they get close we you know we line our cars up we we start down and um as we're pulling into the parking lot and circling around to to unmount from our vehicles i see a white toyota sequoia sitting parked right behind the van but it's not parallel to it it's perpendicular so it wasn't in a parking space it's like somebody pulled up and jumped out and in my mind i'm thinking why don't i know this you know where was the eye on this did he fall asleep did he just miss it did he see where they went and it was across the street inconsequential i don't know we weren't told so i was a little upset you know a little ticked off about it and i'll be i'll be honest i was a little not complacent but when you do so many of these it's kind of procedure you know you're just going through the motions but when i saw that the radar went up a little bit because i'm like man i don't know where if is this a threat yeah that could be jamarcus glover for all you know yeah Yeah. where where did they go what apartment they go into because they're parked right in front of ours so as i tell the guys i'm going to pull up to it and get out they stayed back they unmounted back did the normal approach from you know 20 30 feet back whatever it was i pulled up behind the car that was concealed by the van my car was I get out, I look through the car, I remember seeing a pink uh, baby seat in the back and a bunch of trash, but nobody was in the vehicle. I circle around the front, I make my way through the breezeway, they come up behind me. Um, I'm underneath the staircase at this point, and we've all, we're all in a stack, as best we can. It's a very small area, so I've got one guy behind me, and then we're kind of split. I'm to the left of the door, because the door swung from, from right to left as it opened up. So from the living room toward the kitchen. So the door swings in to the left side. Right. Doorknob's on the right-hand side as Correct. you approach it. And I'm on the left. And then we got the breacher on the right. Um, and there was so, it was so small, the rest of the guys were on the right, kind of wrapped around the staircase. Got it. Okay. And and just to, this will probably become relevant in a second, but the the car that's parked in front, I'm assuming that's the guy that's in the apartment upstairs picking up his kid? Yes. Okay. So, so. We've got a guy who has pulled up and is going to pick up his daughter. His daughter? I think it was the daughter, yeah. It's the baby. Um, it, it, the baby at, at the apartment up above. Directly above Brianna Taylor. Yeah, like right above where you are. Correct. Which, which will come into play in a second here. Yeah. Okay. All right, so you're staged at the door. What happens next? So the initial thought was, let's just knock normal. Like we're delivering a pizza or something. See if she can come to the door because they didn't want the neighbors involved. Um, we'll do this discreetly. We'll get inside the apartment. We'll do our thing. We'll get out. And you're, and you're in a neighborhood where the police hitting a house is going to be like neighborhood entertainment, I'm assuming. Yeah. He's going to come out and have a look. Yes. But it's not as common as the area they're in down on Elliott. Okay. So this wasn't a, a predominantly black community. This wasn't a predominantly poor community. It was kind of, um, kind of middle of the road what middle class a little lower, bit, lower, lower middle, middle class, class. Yeah. working families right yeah. and you had a you had a mix of of, of hispanic black white uh, all kind of interlaced in here so the idea that you know the police were there isn't isn't abnormal but it's not as as frequent as they're going to see down on elliot got it okay so you you decide you're going to knock see what happens so we knock a couple times i knocked a couple times um got no response so at that point, I did the open hand, police knock, loud, boom, 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 police search warrant, police search warrant, come to the door. After the first knock, all of a sudden I hear uh, my lieutenant and Detective Hankinson address somebody, tell them to get back in the apartment, get back in the apartment. Well, I can't see what's above me because there's a, a concrete landing, and I'm right below it. But I know they're addressing somebody because I, I glance out of the corner of my eye my peripheral, and I see them engaging someone up top. 
Um, this goes on. I just ignored it in the beginning as they're conversing back and forth. This guy's arguing with him for whatever reason. He didn't want to go back inside. And so I, I knock a second time. Well, they're still going at it. And this has probably been 10 seconds at this point, which seems <laughs> an eternity when you're at a door. Yeah. And so I simply said, Brett, let it go. Relax. And that wasn't anything on Brett. That was just simply saying, that was just the terminology that came out of my mouth. Relax. Yeah. Because I needed focus on the door and away from that. Because that was distracting people. Yeah. And so the guy went back in the apartment. We focused back on the door, continued knocking. Um, about six cadences total of knock and announce. Um, on the one right before the last one, the breacher, Nobles, said, hold on, I think I heard something inside. So I stopped, listened for a second, didn't hear anything, yelled again, police search warrant. Didn't hear anything, knocked one more time, yelled, please search warrant. Looked back at my lieutenant, and he gave the nod to, to go ahead. And at this time, we've been at the door at least a minute, probably 45 seconds, but probably about a minute. Well, long enough for them to you know, get, get out of bed, get dressed, and be in the hallway. Right, with a gun. With a gun. Yeah, that's yeah. that's about to come into to play here. So, okay, then what do you do? So Mike hits the door the first time, and he hit right on the deadbolt, and which you know is a no-no. And it didn't do anything. It dented the door a little bit, but that was it. And I remember somebody, somebody in the background yelling, "Hey, my daughter hits harder than that." So everybody kind of laughed, as you know, as as you do. Yeah. Second time he hit it, hit it flush, and it almost knocked it open. I could see through to the living room. I could see the deadbolt was bent, and I said, "Here we go." And he hit it a third time, and it flew open. But that time, I can see from right to left. I can see the couch. I can see the curtains on the window. I can see the wall. There's a there was a picture on the wall. And I, from right to left, I'm, I'm, I'm slicing the pie and I get to where the door frame on the left side of the door and the, the wall for the hall meet. I can no longer see anymore. I can't see down the hall. can't see in the kitchen to the left. All I can see is the living room. Everybody at this point yelling, please search warrant, please search warrant, please search warrant. Now this is pretty quick. You know, the, the, the cutting the slicing the pie is maybe two seconds. Yeah. It's so just it's fairly quick. quick. Boom, 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 boom. At that point, as soon as I step from left to right into the door frame and my gun light goes from right to left, I come up on the, I can see the end of this gun. I could see it was silver. And, but the first thing my mind did as I'm turning right to left, I'm seeing two people, but they're overlapping. It's like one big blob at the end of this long hall, long, dark hall. And you got the ambient light from the TV coming out of the room now. You've got the the, law, the light from the hallway kind of coming in, giving a weird look. And then you've got our, you know, mounted, our, our gun lights. So as I'm going right to left, I'm going, man, something's not right here. My brain, even though this is super quick, my brain's thinking all these weird things like, this is weird. Normally people run, they hide, they try to escape, they give up, or they fight. But I've never had two people waiting at the end of a hallway, just standing there. Yeah, it's weird. So, and, and I knew... I, in my mind, I assumed one was a guy and one was a girl because one was taller and one was shorter. But I couldn't make their face out. I couldn't have picked them out of a lineup because my my focus went right on that gun that was extended out. Um, so if you're looking down the hall, uh, Kenneth Walker's to the right, Brianna's to the left. So he's closer to the bedroom right. he's, than he, she is. He's at that little insert, that little end cut that goes to both bedroom doors. As soon as I see the gun, I think, oh, crap. I mean, it was so quick. As soon as I saw the gun, the flash, the bang, the the smack in the leg, I felt it. Um, I returned four shots. It felt like it was simultaneous. Boom, 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 boom. But evidently, there was enough of a gap in there for him to dive out of the way uh, in this doorway. Um, and when that happened, I, I went behind the door frame, and I came back out and shot where I thought he dove into. And um, 
What we didn't know at the time, and we know now looking at the pictures, was Brianna Taylor tried to follow him into that door. And her feet, where she was on the left side of the hall, if you're looking down the hall, her feet ended up on the right, actually past the threshold of where he ran into, into that, into that little indention. And then she fell back against the wall. So um, after I got shot, I felt my leg. After I got out of the way, I said, man, I've been hit. And I knew it was bad because, you know, on the street, I've seen hundreds of people shot. And if it's a, just a through-and-through through leg wound, there's a little blood, but it's not catastrophic. You know, it's not a lot. And as soon as I put my hand out of my leg, it, my, my palm was just soaked. And I thought, oh, man, it's hit my femoral artery. So I yelled that out. Man, I've been hit my femoral. And at that time, I go down, and Miles kind of steps over me and a little bit on me, and he's returning fire down the hallway. And all this, again, is so quick, man. We, can, we, we explain it, but unless you're there, the, the speed at which these things go is, is just tremendous. Oh, it's 12 seconds, right? Yeah, from, from, from the time that door opened and he shot till it was complete silence was 12 seconds. And that's with three, four, four different people firing, people moving, you know, all this stuff happening. So as, as I go down, Miles steps up and shoots. I kind of zone out for just a half a second. And then I come to him like, I can't sit here. I'm going to get shot with crossfire. So I get up and I hobble out and I go behind Miles as he's firing. Um, I go to the curb and as I'm stepping off the curb, I forget about my leg and I step down and I fall between the cars. Well, simultaneously, Miles is done shooting and there's like maybe a half second, three quarter of a second, real quick break. And then I hear gunfire again, but it sounds different because it's no longer in this in this inset, you know, down here where all the, the, yeah, the metal the alcove and, and yeah, you're yeah. not getting the echo. You're not getting all that stuff. There was a different sound and it was multiple gunshots. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, just quick. And I thought in my mind, I thought, holy crap, they are still shooting at each other. You know, even though it's quick, that seemed like a lot of shots. Um, and come to find out that was Brett moving to a secondary location, thinking we were getting assassinated at the doorway. And, you know, he's firing through the, through the windows trying to get them to, to stop shooting. So um, I instantly said, man, I need a tourniquet, need a tourniquet. Uh, my lieutenant comes over, drags me back uh, behind the Sequoia. And um, he doesn't have a tourniquet on him. You know, it's a lieutenant, lucky they have guns on him. Um, so he pulled his belt off. He tried to put it on. Mike Nobles, the guy that was the breacher had come out at this point. Cause when I came out, he was kind of stuck behind the stair between the stairway and the shots being fired. So he couldn't, he couldn't exit. He was kind of stuck up against the wall. So at this point he had, he had arrived about the same time I got pulled out and they stuck that leather belt on me and, and pulled it and it wasn't working. You know, he was stepping on my leg pulling, but the blood was just, it was just slipping off the leather. So that's a myth guys. Don't try that. It does not work. Um, you need a windlass yes. for a tourniquet to work. Yes. And so right at that time, uh, Tony James comes around the corner and he has a tourniquet in his hand. The lieutenant takes it, puts it on and, you know, thank God at least he paid attention in tourniquet class. Cause that, <laughs> that saved my life. Yeah. Cause it hits your femoral artery. Yeah. Yeah. Rip through it. Yeah. So you end up having to have a, an entire section yeah. of about a five and a half hour surgery. It took, I think about six inches of the artery out, took a vein out of my leg, replaced it with that and. Infuse, or a, I don't know what they call it, not fusing, they call it something, grafting. Yeah. Grafted the vein in. Okay, so at this point, Brianna Taylor's in the hallway. She's been shot six times, if I remember correctly, five or six times? It was five. They think the fifth one uh, ricocheted off something and came out a different hole. So okay. they, they said probably five, but they counted six since there was an extra hole. Okay. And they didn't have an injury. Do we know of those five rounds, it was, some of them were yours- one was mine, I think a leg, 
or I think it was a leg. Okay. Um, and the rest were miles, and they think his was the one that pierced her heart and killed her. Okay. So Kenneth Walker dives back into the bedroom. Um, he, he fires a total of one shot. That's it. And if I remember correctly, uh, I mean, obviously one of the, one of the inaccuracies in the reporting that, that has bothered me since I dug into this and read all the files is, you know, you hear it described as, you know, that he fired a warning shot. Yeah. Um, which I, I mean, shooting you in the thigh is a pretty strenuous warning, but I right. guess you could qualify it if you really stretched it. Yeah. He said he shot at the ground. Um, his aim is very bad then because he hits yeah. you very effectively in the thigh. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he he fires the shot and retreats into the bedroom. She's in the hallway, mortally wounded. Attempts to follow, catches the rounds, yeah. So um yeah, she she probably steps into the rounds as you guys are engaging him. Right. At least the first one probably and took her down yeah. if it was a leg shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um so then you have Brett Hankison goes to the side. He fires 10 rounds through two different sets of windows. Uh, it ended up being three total. Well, two sets of windows and the, the sliding door. Okay, so he starts at the sliding door and is basically putting rounds as into he's walked, each of the As rooms. he's moving down the, the building. Got it. Which is currently the subject of a federal indictment for wanton, right. reckless endangerment, right? And civil rights violation, which, if convicted, is a life sentence. So... The wanton reckless endangerment that underlies that is that he was not presented with a target, but was simply firing through blinded windows. Correct. Okay. And I mean, I think that, you know, obviously that one's going to play out, you know, in federal court. And Yeah, the, the only positive uh, hope that he has, I think, is that it already went through state court, the same, basically the same charges but on state level, um, and he was acquitted. And in Jefferson County, I thought there was no way because we're a super liberal city, and and the amount of, naturally, the amount of coverage with the protests and everything that, that happened in the city was, uh, it was it was nonstop for months and months and months. Every day, every newscast. So everybody in the city knew about it. So it's hard to get an impartial jur- jury on that. Um, but thankfully, once they heard the evidence in court, they were within two hours acquitted him. Yeah, that's that's very fortunate. Um, I mean, obviously, this is, and and we'll we'll touch on this. Um, this ends up being the biggest case, probably in the world, for an extended period of time, because it becomes a cause celeb that literally LeBron James, and there's a long litany of people oh, that yeah. felt the need to comment on it. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the accuracy, like I, I would encourage our listeners to like, go look at the official report, look at, you know, all the photographs are online, right? The information is, is literally out there. You can, you can read everything. You can read the statements. The New York times did a, a kind of real time reenactment that shows, you know, positions. And, and I think that for, for a listener to this podcast, it's a good idea to go watch that because if nothing else, it visualizes it for you. It's not from what I'm seeing and what we've talked about, totally accurate. Right. But it's yeah. close. Right. All the facts leading up to, and, and some of wrong, but the actual depictment of where the placement was of the bullets and everything's accurate. And so just to go back to the door, so there's, you know, your, your left side of the door, that a guy to your right side, which is Miles. No. Well, the guy to the right was the, the, the Ram. The Ram. The breacher. Was Once he 
Mike. Mike. As soon as he hit, he naturally backed out. So he breaches, and then Miles steps up next to you. No, he came up over my right shoulder. He was Got he it. was also on the right side, and he kind of, you know, kind of how you kind of zipper in. Sure. Uh, so as I turned left, he kind of was coming right, and he saw the flash, and Brett happened to be over his shoulder, you know, eager to get up there trying to you sure know, get yeah. their way in, and uh, he saw the flash too. And when he did, that's when Brett realized I can't get in the doorway. I knew John was shot, but I can't get in the doorway because Miles is there, so I'm going around the front. So he peels off. Yeah. Okay, so you get hit, turn, run. Basically, in in between two cars where you fall. Right. Um, Miles continues to engage, and Brett runs around to the side and engages through through the blinds. Then, at some point, the shooting stops. Right. Then what happens? So, while they're working on me, um, you know, I hear them yelling inside and on the radio and and different things. I I even remember at one point, Brett getting on the radio saying, uh, they got a long rifle, and I'm on my back, and they're doing the tourniquet. And I remember yelling at him, going, "No, it wasn't a rifle. It was a it was a silver handgun." Because my mind, I mean, I just focused on it. There could have been a rifle there too, but I never even made it to to Brianna Taylor. You know, once I hit that gun, my I stopped. Yeah, because everything just happened. Yeah, because well, he shot you. Right, and so uh, which has a way of picking you pay attention. <laughs> yeah, it got my attention real quick. Yeah. Um, so while they're doing all that. Jamar or uh, Kenneth Walker is inside. He doesn't call nine one one. You see on the news all this. Oh man, he called he, when he heard somebody banging his door. He called nine one one, and you hear him. Somebody shot my girlfriend. All that. He didn't do make that call until six minutes after the shooting. He called his mom first. Then there was a gap. Then he called nine one one, and then he called Brianna Taylor's mom. He didn't come out of the apartment for almost seventeen minutes, um, even though he knew the police were out there. Just refused to come out for whatever reason, scared, whatever, whatever you want to label. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it's probably reasonable for him to be afraid. He just right. shot a police officer, right? So, um, the the only fact that throws all that into um, maybe a a contentious point for those that said he didn't know it was the police, and for what he said on that recorded call to nine one one, is the fact we know he called his mom first, and then we also had a courtesy officer that lived in that apartment that that went to middle school and high school with Kenneth. Knew, knows Kenneth's mom, and when he heard the shots, he turned his radio on, heard an officer was down, put his uniform on, and came down to the scene. Uh, by the time he got down there, Kenneth Walker's mom had shown up because he had called her, and she came up to this guy she knew, naturally, and said, I don't know what's going on. Kenny called me and said, they're at the door. I said, who's at the door, baby? He said, it's the police. I got to go, and hung up. So we don't know if that call was made prior to the incident or if that was the first call made after. But he was on the phone with her for like two and a half minutes. So we know that wasn't, if that was the second call made or the call after the shooting, that wasn't the extent of the conversation. So uh, there was a third phone on scene that we don't have access to. The FBI has for whatever reason they won't give us to us. But um, it was on the bed. It was on the side of the bed on the table. And we don't know if that original call when we were banging at the door was made from there or if he told his mom that after the shooting. Not really sure. Got it. But he... You know, it, obviously, after the fact, these things have a way of taking on kind of their own explanations. But um, best case scenario from from Kenneth Walker's standpoint, he doesn't know it's the police mm-hmm. and thinks that somebody is breaking down the door, which could be her ex-boyfriend, could be whoever. Yeah, yeah I mean, evidently a couple months prior to this, her, him and the ex or the ex-boyfriend had come to the apartment asking if he was there. 
I guess he knew he was seeing him as well. And she was kind of seeing both guys. And uh, so it was kind of a mess in that area. Um, and, and Kenneth Walker, wasn't the, he wasn't the saint that, that the news paints him out to be. He, when they downloaded his phone, he's selling pills and weed and holding up all these different guns, which guns by themselves aren't illegal. But if you're selling drugs, you can't have a gun. But he's legally, he, he's legally carrying, right? Right. Even though before legal carry, even though before open carry was legal in Kentucky, you had to have a CCDW to have a, a gun concealed. He was caught with one. They charged him. It was lowered to some some misdemeanor in court, and and so that was never that charge never stuck on his record, even though he had he had been caught with one illegally prior to this. Got it. But he has a CCW. He did at the time. Not, I mean, not that it matters because he's in an apartment and right. could legally possess a gun right. in an apartment. Um. Okay. So then. They, it's it, one of the things that, that is troubling when you watch the video is like you guys had EMS staged with you, <laughs> but it doesn't seem like they were with you because you were down on the ground. Yeah. I'm for not a long time. We still don't know what happened there. When I first pulled up to EMS, um, I pulled up and I looked up and two very young EMS workers and I thought, Oh crap, man. My kid, I mean, they look as young as my kids and the driver was a black guy. The passenger was a white guy. Uh, the driver, when I pulled up, had headphones on. I honked my horn. They didn't hear me. I got my light out, shined it. Finally got their attention. He rode the window down. He couldn't get his headphones off. They were stuck in his braids. Um, the white kid's over there watching something on his phone, totally zoned out. And I said, man, you guys here for us? And he said, yeah. And I said, hopefully we won't, we won't be long and you'll be on your way. And I left and went over to, to Mike Nobles and said, man, I hope them guys ain't got to save our life because I don't know if they know what they're doing. And yeah, it's just kind of the, yeah. the odds of it. Yeah, one of those ironic moments yeah. that seem to always exist in yes. these situations. Um, so, so at the point that that they put the tourniquet on you, um, is is the video of that public like that was released? The body worn camera, yeah, of that it was. is released, yeah. which which I think I would encourage people to watch because it it is certainly, and we'll talk about training and preparation, but it is, um, it's troubling the 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 level of medical care that you are receiving with a femoral artery um I, I watched it several times um i'm deeply troubled on your behalf when the guy that's putting a bandage on you says i don't know what to do with this yeah um i can only imagine what was going through your brain at that point yeah because well the main thing going through my brain was okay they got the tourniquet on i'm good i care less about a bandage I don't, I don't, you know whatever yeah. it's blood it's already there putting that bandage on ain't going to change much um but my concern was I thought I'd been either shot twice or the bullet ricocheted off something went up because the pain wasn't where I was shot. It was up in my groin and my lower back. So I was like, man, check, check this out. Cause by the time the camera starts, uh, the tourniquet was already on. Yeah. So we'd been out there for a few minutes. Um, and I remember saying, I mean, get a knife cut higher to make sure you got high enough. Yeah. That's what I kept saying. Just make sure you're high enough. You're over the, if there's two wounds, make sure you're above the second one. Yeah. And so, they cut it and he said, man, I can't find anything. Well, I guess it was just the nerve endings that had been damaged when the, when it went through, because again, where the, where it went in and came out, there wasn't much pain. Uh, it was, it was the different area. So it was, it was really weird, but, um, yeah, even the tourniquet thing, man, if, if there's cops that are listening to this again, complacency and it wasn't on purpose on this one on my behalf. When I came out from the brief, I had two flat tires on my car. The car behind me had a couple of flat tires. So somebody come through our parking lot and pop some tires. Police cars. Yeah. Yeah. So I went in, uh, found a pool car uh, while I was transferring all my stuff. I mean, it is just pouring rain. So I'm in a hurry, moving moving gear, moving equipment. 
And when my vest wasn't on, I always took my tourniquet out and threw it in my glove box. So I thought, well, if I'm going down the road or whatever reason, at least I can get it quick instead of my vest in the trunk or back seat. Well, when I moved stuff, I totally forgot to get my, my tourniquet. I was in a hurry and just messed up. So I couldn't save my own life if somebody else didn't have a tourniquet. Which I'd, fortunately, I'd fortunately somebody did. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. Um, okay. So then they transport you to the hospital. Right. Um, you get kind of basic medical. They, you know, what do you end up having to have as far as surgeries go and what happens then? Uh, what well, was, like I said, a five hour surgery. Um, I went in at two thirty or two, woke up at seven thirty in the morning. Uh, I remember I opened my eyes and was like, the first thing came to my mind, I don't know why. I looked at the nurse and said, what blood type am I? Cause I wouldn't have known what to tell them on that either. Yeah. You know, we didn't have the patches on us. We didn't have any of that stuff. So, um, she told me, and, and then when my wife came in, um, I didn't know if anybody else had been shot, the bad guys. I knew none of the good guys had been. And I looked at her and said, man, was anybody else shot? And she said, yeah, I went, who? And she said, a female. And man, my heart just sank because I knew the female didn't fire the shot. I knew the taller of the two did, and it was probably the male. So, and, and you know, it's every cop's worst nightmare. You don't want to. You don't want to put a, a bullet where it's not where it doesn't belong. You don't want to shoot an innocent person. And in this case, she was innocent. You know, as far as she didn't shoot the police. You know, maybe her lifestyle wasn't pure, but that's most people. So uh, she didn't deserve to get shot. She didn't deserve to die. But you know, the situation was just a total tragic, tragic event. I think I think one of the things that that made me want to sit down with you was when I first started to investigate this and started reading all the files and everything else. You know, it's portrayed that, you know, it's seven racist cops, you know, shooting some, shooting an unarmed black female in her home, you know, in her bed. And, um, and, and, you know, these situations are never as bad as they are presented and they're never as good as they're presented. Right. It's always, the truth is always gray. Right. And as I started to dig into this, there were several things that, that made me want to sit down and talk to you. And one of them was the fact that you've said kind of from the beginning that, she didn't have to die and she shouldn't have died. And this is, this is a tragedy. Well, I think kind of her whole life was kind of, you know, we, we get on people saying, quit being a victim, quit being a victim, but she was kind of a victim her whole life. Dad's been in prison her whole life. Mom didn't raise her. Grandma did. Grandma died. She kind of got reunited with her mom. It seems like at the end. Um, but these girls are the typical targets for these guys to take advantage of, to use. Um, they, they can sniff them out somehow and they just, these girls are attracted to the bad boys that are going to quote, take care of them, um, and love them and do all this stuff. And, and it, it appears that she was stuck in that kind of that cycle because that's how she was raised. And, and so victim on that end and then victim on the end where instead of this boyfriend saying, stay in here and call 911, I think somebody's kicking our door down. No, come out with me in the hall, Yeah, you know, and then, and then instead of rendering medical aid or letting the police come in and render medical aid, didn't do it. You know, one of his statements on, I think, Good Morning America, he was like, oh, as she went down, I held her in my arms and held her as she passed away. Well, he didn't have any blood on him. Yeah, so, yeah, that's clearly not yeah. true. And then when he comes out, he blames her for shooting. No, she shot. So, you know, this guy is not a guy of integrity or, or somebody that we want to believe or hang your hat on, yet that's that's what's happened here. Yeah, and I think it's just unfortunate timing, right? Like, this, this is... Um, I, I said to several people, like, as I investigated this, certainly there, there is, there's blame to go around all right. over the place here. Right. 100%. And, and like all these things, there, there are numerous people that made catastrophically bad decisions that, that led to this whole thing. And 
and they were seemingly insignificant decisions at the time. Right. But, um, what I, I think is, is worth noting here is from the beginning of this thing, it took on a life of its own. It was, you know, it went from a news story that Louisville police killed an armed black woman in her home to, you know, LeBron James is talking about it and it is the top story in every newscast. And it just began to accelerate and accelerate and accelerate. And you just, you could see that it, at some point the facts weren't going to matter anymore. Right. Like it, it was just, you know, you, you had, you had plaintiff's attorneys show up that were immense, you know, immediately shaking the city down. And then you have all the civil unrest that breaks out. And, and in the process, you know, the facts, I'm not going to say the facts don't matter, but the facts, you know, I said in the intro, like the initial reporting is very inaccurate. It becomes more accurate over time. By the time you get to the New York Times recreation and some of those things, like you've gotten a pretty accurate, like you hear the reports and they're pretty accurate. The problem is that the initial story is what sticks. Right. And the initial story is, you know, seven racist white cops. Oh man. Shoot a poor unwarned black. Yeah. Yeah. The big tragedy in this was that, that a lot of the unrest could have been avoided. I think had the truth just been put out because look at the, the four, four of the things there was more, but the four main things initially put out by Kamala Harris, by LeBron James, by Cardi B, by like one of Cardi B's posts had over 17 million views or likes on it about us that were full lies. And it's, they said we had the wrong address, which isn't true. Everything on the warrant had her address on it, her social, her car, her description. Um, they said she was asleep in bed. She was not asleep in bed. She may have been asleep before we got there, but the incident didn't occur. They made it sound like we walked in and assassinated her. In that, her sleep. That's exactly what I thought when I first and saw people the news still coverage. believe that I get, yeah. I get people hit me up online all the time with crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, how could you sneak into this person's house and kill them in bed? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, they said we didn't knock and announce. Well, that's been disproven as well. Uh, they said Jamarcus Glover had been in custody for 10 hours. So there was no need to first even go there because we were looking at, it was an arrest warrant for him. Well, neither of those things are true. He wasn't in custody yet and it wasn't uh, an arrest warrant. So once all those facts got put out and, and nobody rebutted them that had a, a position of authority, you know, naturally people think, oh, well, the news ain't lying to me. So it must be true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that that kind of transitioned us like, I would encourage anybody that listens to this podcast to actually go and look at the report and do the homework. Like before you make a decision on anything that's happened here, read your book, which I think is, a, you know, is, a, is pretty right down the middle. I, I actually expected it to be more partisan since it's your book and, and this, you know, you were one of the victims of this thing, right? Like right. obviously Brianna Taylor lost her life and that's terrible. And, I, and I'm not going to minimize that in any way, shape or form because, you know, as you said, she didn't deserve that. But this thing wrecked everybody's lives. And, and I think that, you know, if you read your book and you, you understand how many times you moved your family and how many times your kids were threatened and, you know, all of the things that happened, um, I think what made me initially want to sit down with you is like, this guy is every narc sergeant I've ever known. There was nothing in the execution of this search warrant that was any different than, than you would see anywhere in the United States, a narcotics team doing. Right. Right. And, and so like the big thing that I want our listeners to take away is the lessons learned here. 
right? It, it is the kind of cautionary tale of this situation. And, you know, I, I would encourage people to look at the press coverage, look at your book, look at the official reports and, and understand the fallout that occurred because this thing took on its own life and managed to just destroy everybody in its path um, in the process. Yeah. And if I could add, you know, we as, as police officers, we get pretty calloused, you know, 20 years of people saying they're going to kill you or fighting you or hating you, spitting on you, whatever. You get kind of used to it. You don't like it, but you're used to people saying ugly, nasty, mean things, but your family isn't when you've got, you know, young adults as, as, as your kids and one that's still in elementary and then uh, a wife and parents and everybody that's getting all these uh, threats and then having the FBI come to you and say, yes, there's been a, a hit taken out on you and your family, get out of town. You know, that kind of rattles everybody's world because uh, even if you're seasoned in it, when that happens, you go, man, this is like a movie. Are you kidding me? Now we've got in the middle of the night, get up and move. You know, what's happening here? Um, and then at the same time, when, when, Fortunately, I had a guy in our department, Tom Chardine, who, who's retired now, but he was over our dignitary protection team, and he fought so hard for us to get a security detail because the department didn't want to do that. Knowing there was an active hit placed out on us, knowing the FBI said, it's good, we're investigating, they were like, eh, we don't really have the manpower, we don't want to do it. And fortunately, he fought, and, and you know, there's still some good people you know, in command, but, and he was one of them, and, and so I'll forever be indebted to him for that. Yeah, because, I mean, the city washes their hands of this thing Instant. as quickly as they possibly can. You have the chief of police and the mayor um, running from it. I talked to the mayor the day after I got shot, he came in. I talked to the police chief the night of and then the day after he came in and saw me. Um, and I talked to one other person on the command staff after that. And other than that, nobody from the chief's office I've talked to. This entire time. So you're laying in a hospital bed with a gunshot wound, and that was the support you received? Yeah, it wasn't one of those, you know, when you leave, you got the guys lined up cheering, none of that. No, it was me and my wife and two buddies from work. That's horrifying. Um, let's let's talk about, so so you, you ultimately heal. How long does it take you to get kind of back to normal from the gunshot wound? Man, I, I got back fairly quick. I rehabbed hard. Um Leg didn't break, right? No. No, fortunately I had a wallet in my pocket that kind of deflected it because it was it was right at the femur bone. It was right at the hole is. Um, and the doctor said, that's good. You know, it still hits your femoral artery, but if the bone had shattered and then hit it, it would have drawn up into your pelvis and, yeah. you know, there's nothing you could have done about it. Yeah, I just recently interviewed Jordan uh, Robison who was shot in San Bernardino and that was exactly what happened. His femur shattered. And I didn't realize your femur is constantly under tension and it slammed it up Yeah, into, you know. The pelvic everything. area. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I was fortunate in that area. Yes. Uh, so Ballistic so my, wallet paid off. Yes. <laughs> so uh, my leg's still numb, um, but overall things are pretty good. Uh, I healed fairly quickly, you know, pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. Because I wanted to go back. I told my wife in the hospital, I said, I'm going back. I'm going to do a warrant the first thing I'm going to do when I get back. And it's like falling off a bike. I'm going to get back on, on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you know, with the circumstances, that was impossible. They didn't, they didn't even want me to come back. Um, so when I, I rehabbed and came back and the day I came back, they were like, Oh, you're transferred to the property room. And, you know, as a form of quote punishment, since they couldn't legally do anything to me. 
Well, and so you guys are all in legal jeopardy initially, right? Like right. the DA is going to, the attorney general is looking at it. Potentially everybody's going to have charges filed against him. Right. Ultimately, it's only Brett Hankison that gets state charges filed, right? Correct. Which which is reckless, you know, wanton endangerment charges. Right. But the they, the district attorney, yeah, doesn't file on, on either of you. Right. Yeah, the attorney general didn't. And, and people were in an up, uproar over that because they don't understand the system. Yeah. You know, you only file charges where there's probable cause, you know, where a crime has been committed. And when they looked at the statute, looked at the circumstances, they were like, well, we didn't charge Kenneth Walker and we're not charging them for self-defense. You know, do we have castle doctrine for him? Do we have self-defense for them since they're police officers? So people were mad about that. But, you know, I, I, I am grateful for the attorney general, who's a black man in Kentucky, who stood his ground. And, you know, you had Beyonce writing him saying, oh, you got to do this or we're going to do something about it. Uh, you had uh, 50, I think 56 members of Congress and Senate writing saying we need to get locked up and all that. And he stood his ground. And, you know, for a politician to do that, it, it's rare these days. Yeah, for sure. Well, and none of the other politicians in town did. So, no, not at all. You know, bonus credit, the yeah. AG. So then at what point did you realize this thing is spiraling out of control? Yeah, so when it first happened, you know, like I said, I asked my wife, and I'm like, oh, crap, here a white cop shoots an unarmed black female. This ain't going to be good. Yeah. Um, but then it was, it was March 13th. And again, I forgot to say this when we, when we served the warrant, it was a Friday night or Friday morning, early full moon, Friday 13th. And I'm like, Oh man, you know, here we go. Yeah. All the stars were aligned. So COVID the shutdown for the nation was on the 13th of March. That's when the president came in and said, you know, we're shutting a lot of things down. The state did as well. So I thought in the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe we'll go without much press coverage on this. Cause they're so consumed with this COVID thing. And that was the case for at least a month. Then Ahmaud Arbery got shot. Well, Ben Crump went down on the Ahmaud Arbery case. Well, when he did, the attorney for Breonna Taylor's family, uh, a female there had gone to, when she went through law school, had done her internship for him. And so she reached out to him and said, hey, our client's not getting any national attention. And this is her words. Our client's not getting any national attention. Um, can you do something for us? Well, he went, what circumstances? Told him, oh, ding, 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 money. Sure, yeah. I can. No problem. So his, his big statement was, if you run for a mod, run for Bree, because they were doing some two-mile run or whatever it was in his remembrance. And um, so things started picking up then, because before that, it was her family and a few people, maybe 15, 20 people, you know, a couple times a week making a fuss, but but not a big deal. Um, then after mod happened and it, and it started getting national news because of that, then you could feel the tension in the city start to pick up. Then it went from 20 people to 50 people to 100 people to 200 people. And as time went on, the crowd grew each day for this little protest. Now, Louisville's always had the reputation of not being, didn't have, really have the heart to do big protests. You know, we'd hear, oh, it's coming in, three percenters, and these people or whoever come in and be a handful of people. And you're like, ah, it's kind of let down. Um, so I was thinking, well, maybe this won't really catch on because this is Louisville. You know, we're a liberal city, but I think these things just don't happen here. And when it started building up, though, and more and more people came, started happening, and then the death threats just started coming in like crazy, um, I reached out to to, one, to our president of our city council, who's a retired cop, who trained me in the academy, who trained me how to do these warrants, who, who taught the narcotics class I went through. I reached out to him and said, man, can you do something about this? Here's what they're saying. And I laid out all the, all the lies. And I said, here's the truths. And I laid all those out. And I said, the mayor's too big of a coward to say anything. He said, he is. I'll do a press conference next week and get the facts out. Perfect. 
I got a black city council president who's got some clout in the community, who's a former cop, who's going to help me out here, right? That's so I thought. Sure. So that never came through. Matter of fact, he ended up getting on TV a few weeks later talking about uh, we served a no-knock warrant. We did it all wrong and all this stuff. I'm like, that's not even the case. <laughs> we did not serve a no-knock warrant. So that fell through and things kept building. And then you had, you know, the pinnacle, George Floyd. So you had this horrible trifecta. Breonna Taylor in March, Ahmaud Aubrey in April, George Floyd in May. And once that happened, the city just exploded. Yeah. Then it just, you know, and I think everybody knows the story from there. It, right. It takes off. So, like, let's talk about the cautionary tale here. Let's talk about lessons learned. And, and there, there are several things that stick out to me. And I just want to kind of walk through with you. Let's start with training. Okay. Right. So we've got, we have an ad hoc team of seven guys that have never served a warrant as a team together. Your, your narcotics training there's no formal, like nobody's been through a SWAT school. No. Um, when was the last time before this event that you had received any kind of entry training, formal entry training? 2017. So three years? Two, yeah, almost three years. Almost three years. And and who was that training from? It was from SWAT. Is that is the culture in the organization that there is a, a positive relationship between narcotics and SWAT, or is it a tense relationship, or what's that? I would say it's neutral. It's not tense. It's not... You know, there's no, um, there's no animosity. Uh, we had some SWAT guys in narcotics, um, and we would call them if we needed something to go, Hey, can you reach out and, you know, get this done for us? And they would, but, um, yeah, there was no tension there. It's just, um, SWAT's just different. That's the only way I can describe it. You know, they're, they're a different alpha breed than, than the rest of, of, of cops usually. And, um, so they do their training. They kind of keep things almost to themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of secretive. Um, and so if they had to train us, nah, they probably didn't want to, but they did. Um, but, you know, and, and some of that falls on us. As leaders, we could have done our own training, and we didn't, because we figured, man, if we're doing three or four warrants a week, why do we need to train if we're yeah. doing live action training? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we're, we're good. We're doing yeah, it all the time. Right. I've done 2,000. Nothing. I mean, I've been shot at, but nobody's died. Nobody's gotten hurt. You know, here we go. Um and, and ultimately that complacency or that lack of, of being proactive in training, you know, it put us where we're at today. Well, and just uh, one thing I should have hit early in, but like prior to this, you've had in your career, no force complaints filed against you. Right. You never shot anybody. No. You've never been shot. Right. And if I remember correctly, you, I think your only sustained discipline was a late report or something. Yep. That was it. You got a letter in your personnel file. That's it. So, you know, there's, there's not, you don't have a long history of, of negative discipline that, you know, this often in these situations, you know, you look back over the history of somebody and it's like, oh, this guy had 15 force complaints right. that, you know, like, like how did his bosses not see this guy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you like, you watch, you watch the train wreck develop over the course of 10 right. years. Um, one of the things with this that, that struck me is how, how that's not the case here. Right. No, I mean, uh, and, and this ain't, this isn't me being cocky, but people, wanted me to work for them because yeah. I did what they asked. You know, we worked hard, we got results and, and the guys enjoyed working for me. It seemed like, so, uh, there wasn't any issues. Like I didn't have any tension with upper command. You know, there was none of that. It was just, I came to work, did my job, went home. Yeah. Until this day. And then, right. you know, that's that. So how regularly while you're in narcotics, does your team train just 2017? And then that's kind of it. Do you have a regular training day? Well, what they started, um, I'm trying to think when they started it. 
and it went on for about six months and it kind of fizzled out was once a month they wanted to do some type of training. So I think one month we had the district attorneys come in and talk about how they wanted warrants done. Uh, one month we had uh, maybe a vehicle takedown training. Um, but most of it was classroom stuff, not not hands-on. This is how, this is what we're doing. And, and not, it wasn't a tack house. It wasn't stuff like that. And 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 there's no formal process for anybody to go through SWAT training or, no. or anything no, like no, that? Yeah, you can't, if you're not in SWAT, you can't submit and go to SWAT training. How often do you guys do you shoot? How often do you qualify? Twice a year. Is that the only time you shoot? That's it. Yeah, as a team or as, yeah, unless you do it on your own. Our, unfortunately, our, um, at least at the time, I don't know if it's changed, our range wasn't available to us um, because when they weren't doing recruits or doing regular qualifications, they were renting it out to other people. Um, so, so if you we, wanted to shoot, you had to go to like a public range? Right. Um, yeah, no ammo. Wouldn't give that up because it's too expensive. So it was it was either you did it on your own or you didn't do it. Got it. Did you do it on your own or Not you much. didn't do it? Not much. Got it. So let's talk about equipment. So you've got only handguns. Right. Uh, everybody's in soft armor, I'm assuming? I had plates. You had plates? Mm-hmm. Um, you said guns, gun lights? Yes. No optics on your weapons? Not allowed. Not allowed? Not allowed. And no long guns? Not allowed either. Used to be able to have a long gun. We used to have one long gun, one shotgun, and then pistols on every on every entry. And without explanation, they wouldn't tell us why. I think, my personal opinion, I think SWAT didn't want them so they could, this is when they were pushing their full-time team, so they could say, no, we need to come in and do all the warrants. Not positive on that because nobody would give us a, a, an answer. You know, it's kind of like a kid when you tell them, no, why? Well, because I said. Yeah. Well, sometimes you, you need to know the why. And and I think this was one we're risking our life. Give, at least give me the why. Help me understand so I can relate it to my guys. But that was never the case. Yeah. And so you you took a shield with you. Yeah. Well, you, you didn't. One of your guys took a shield right. with you. Right. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was, that was a mistake on my part. Um, as, I'm, as I'm out messing with my car in the lot in the rain, one of the guys who had worked, I've worked with him off and on for years. He was a canine guy most of the time, but... Now he's doing this. Um, he says, hey, Sarge, I got a shield. Do you want to bring it? Well, I was like, sure. And then I went on and did my thing. We, none of us that made entry at night have been trained on a shield. I don't know where he got the shield. I don't know if somebody left it in his car, if he borrowed it from somebody. I have no idea. Uh, but I said, sure, bring the shield. So then by the time all these other things go on and we get on scene, I'm the first one up. He comes at some point in behind me. I forgot about the shield. Totally forgot about it because in 2000 warrants, I think I've used a shield twice, um, and that was for for to keep pit bulls back. Um, so unless you're in SWAT, you don't get trained on the shield either. And so it's it, it was a mistake. I would love to have had it, and hopefully it would hit the shield, and not me. But again, not trained on it, so I, I'm not sure how effective that would have been either. Yeah, it's it's a fair point. Um, let's talk about tactics for a minute. So. At this point in time, it's 2019, 20? 20. 20. So 2020, March 2020, um, a lot of teams have begun to move to a containing call-out approach for search warrants, right. at least on the coasts. Including ours. So your SWAT team had moved to that approach. Yeah, they implemented that. And did they use that on the, on the other warrants that they served? I'm not sure. Uh, I think some people said they did. Yeah, yeah I know. Th- I know they didn't go through the door. Yeah, the video not, looks like. I'm not sure if they banged the door f- or knocked the door and banged first. Sometimes they did that. I know, 
but I don't know if on that one in particular. I think when they pulled up, some people ran in, and so they knew the police were there, and they called them out. That's Got what it. I think happened. So, so, so the SWAT is using contain and call out, but narcotics is not at all. No, not at all. So everything you do is dynamic. Either dynamic or taking people off at other locations, walking back. Yeah, taking vehicles down and, right. and those kinds of things. Um, was there any discussion that you remember at that point about contain and call out? No, it was never even a suggestion to us. Um, it was never, hey, SWAT's doing this. Maybe you ought to think about it. Or SWAT never came to us and said, hey. Now, I do know the retired SWAT commander um, reached out at one point after this event and said, man, I told the chief in 2019 or 18 or whatever it was. It was somewhere close to that before he retired. He said, I told the chief that we had to have you all in, do training, get you all up to date on what we're doing. And he said, no, the budget and time don't allow for it. Yeah, penny smart, dollar dumb. Yeah. So, I mean, and at that point, it had been two years plus since you guys had trained with the SWAT team. So even right. if they're doing it, that that tactic, there's no organizational, institutional knowledge being passed back and forth. Right. There's no there's no SOP on it. There's no nothing. Is is there a culture in the organization of debrief? And paying attention to mistakes and lessons learned. SWAT's great at it, um, but the the narc units, the impact units, no. So when you guys did a warrant, did you have like you normally would do a warrant? Was there you know sit down kind of after action? Hey, we shouldn't do this. We should think about doing this. No, or in the early days, um, I'm talking years ago, it was brought up. It was mentioned, or maybe they said we should or you need to, but it, it's never been a practice. Um, if somebody royally screwed up on something, you talked about it, but, but like you said, it's, there's always something, no, no, no op is perfect. And we should have been addressing those. And maybe if we'd been addressing those all along, we would have come to the point that we looked at each other and said, maybe we need to do this containment and call out because, you know, we keep messing up here and there and, and eventually it's going to catch up to us. And it did. Well, and, but in the 2000 that you did, you know, prior to that, you hadn't had that many close calls, right? No, just one one shooting that I was going through the door on. That was it. That those around that went past you, right. past your head, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty close call. Yeah, it was. <laughs> like, yeah, I got cut up from it, but 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 other than that, you have two thousand repetitions of this working. Yeah, like it, yeah. The only thing, only issues we ever had were dogs that we had to put down. Other than that, humans usually complied, ran, did something. Yeah, we were just you know fortunate. Now, let's talk about. Knock and announce. You're banging on the door. Do mm-hmm. you have any kind of PA system? No. No loudspeakers, no, you know, nothing that would wake up the neighborhood and make sure everybody's paying attention. No. And 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 I think I talked talk to you about this earlier. Mistake, another mistake we made that we had just let fall by the wayside. I can't remember, honestly, the last time we did it. It used to be common practice that every time we served a warrant, because we were in plain clothes. Now, obviously, our vest said police big on them. We were probably more recognizable than a guy in a dark blue suit with one little badge. Sure. You know, it said police. We had guns. You know, you knew who we were. But we used to always have a marked car pull up out front. And as we were knocking, they would hit their lights and sirens. Minimum lights. Every once in a while, toot their siren a couple of times. Just to let the neighborhood know also that these bangs you're here, these yells you're here. Don't worry. It's all right. It's the police. But to also inform the people inside. And and we had let that slip, and, and I think it could have made a big difference here. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that as I read through the facts of this, obviously we'll never know what was in Kenneth Walker's mind, right? right? 
And, and you know, unless we can somehow get access to, to whatever exchange happened between him and his family, we'll never know whether he believed it was the police before he fired. His behavior to me does not look like a guy who was there to shoot it out with the police. Right. Right. Usually if a guy's going to shoot out with the police, he stands at the door and, and there's a gunfight. He fires one around and runs away. Right. Right. So in, in the back of my brain, there is always this kind of maybe he legitimately thought it was her ex-boyfriend or something like that. Obviously, once he fires the round and, and gets fired back, he realizes he's engaged with the police. At a minimum, at that point, he knows. Whether he knew before that. But the fact that there wasn't a PA system, there wasn't any kind of, you know, there weren't, there wasn't a marked unit out front, certainly weakened the knock and notice aspect. And I think one of the lessons learned is, you know, what, what we see a lot of teams out here do is they will use a really loud loudspeaker. And actually, when they do a containing call out, they will record the audio on the opposite side of the house uh, and demonstrate, yeah, no, I hear the audio. Um, and, and, you know, again, any of these things, any one of these things may not have changed the situation. Right. The question is, if you're looking at this going forward, how many of these things can you can you do Yeah. to just decrease likelihood? Or at the very least, that way, if it gets out in a negative way, all the lies, you can go, no, man, here's, here's a, like you said, here's a recording of, the, of them yelling, saying, please, you know, we, we didn't have any of that. Yeah. And in this case, there were, there was the, the guy upstairs knew the police were there and said that he heard the knock and notice. Right. Um, there's one other that like, I think if I remember correctly, one other that said they did and then kind of recounted that as time went on. Right. So the guy downstairs, I think his last name is Nagby or Netherby, something like that. The one that when, when Hankinson shot, it went through, through Brianna Taylor's apartment and into the apartment where this other couple lived. And what he told the first investigator on scene that, that took statements was, I heard you all knocking at the door and yelling. I thought you were there for me. As I was coming to the door, that's when the shots started ringing out, and that's when it came through my wall, and we just dove on the ground. So he knew, he heard us yelling. I'm not sure if he could verify police, because he, he wouldn't go that far, because you know a week later they sued us, and then he totally yeah. shut down. Yeah, because Hankison's rounds, just to, to put this you know, story, if, if you picture the apartment running down sideways, there's another apartment that's basically right behind that one. Yeah, the kitchen Hankison, wall. The kitchen wall connects them. Yeah, common kitchen wall. Yeah. Hankison's rounds go through the kitchen, through Brianna Taylor's kitchen, into the neighboring kitchen, and through their sliding glass door. Yeah. So, so yeah. if you look at the pictures online, you'll see the the shattered sliding glass door. You'll see, you know, pictures of rounds in clocks and you know right. chairs and and all kinds of stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, you can see where he would not necessarily be all that friendly after right. after taking rounds in his apartment. Um, but there were no other people that came forward and said that they heard that it was the police. No, matter of fact, their main witness, um, she's a, a protester, got on, she's been on a couple of the different documentaries saying, oh, I didn't hear the police knock, they didn't knock, they didn't announce, they didn't do all this stuff. And she's the one that their attorney propped up as their, their prime witness. And I've got a recording of her on her Facebook where she was live on there talking. And she said, all you people mad at me. She said, I couldn't even hurt the police if I wanted to. I was two buildings away. And I'm thinking, yet she was the prime witness, you know, saying that we didn't announce. So yeah. that's what you're dealing with. Yeah, for sure. So then from a, obviously medical response is, is troubling. Mm -hmm. I mean, fortunately, 
you know, they saved your life. We're thankful for that. But um, there was EMS was staged at a point that they, what does it take them? Ten minutes to get there? Uh, it should have taken. It took them about ten. Yeah, it should have taken like less than a minute. Yeah, so they're they're playing they video games, quarter mile away. Yeah, playing video games, yeah. watching TV. Right. Um, and then your teammates, and I'm using air quotes when I say the word hmm. teammates, the, the, coworkers, your, your coworkers, yeah. nice, um, are not obviously trained. One of them is trained in how to put a tourniquet on, but. Um, when you see the video, you can see that the guys, they don't, they don't even know what to do with a compression bandage. Was there a policy in the agency of teaching any kind of TCCC? So we had uh, CPR and first aid training every two years. And it's, I don't want to say it's a joke, but it's not taken real serious. It's, you come to class, you do your eight hours, you go home. And if you're paying attention, you're kind of paying attention. If you're not, you're not, which is on you if you're not, because it's your life at stake. But that's just the reality of it. You know, tape gets played or video gets started. The instructor walks out of the room. You watch the first aid thing. They come back in. You practice on somebody once or twice. You're done. Uh, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty lame. Yeah. And, and, and obviously was necessary. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately it didn't have a worse outcome for you, but. Right. That that was not for lack of trying. Um, what about in the agency? Talk to me about the role of the narcotics units versus the SWAT team. It's full time SWAT team, mm-hmm. and and then you have more than one narcotics unit, right? Yeah, we had. Let's see, you have your major case unit. You've got your interdiction unit, and then at one point we had three street squads. I think at this time we only had two. And then you had the place-based investigation unit, which really wasn't narcotics, but it fell under uh, the guise of, of how they'd reorganized some things. So basically four narcotics units. But narco, from a chain of command standpoint, is on a completely different chain of command from SWAT. Yes. And there's not a regular engagement taking place for, you know, culture swap or like, hey, no. we're doing this and no, you guys should try this. Got it. Um, one more topic for gear talk to me about body worn cameras because it was a very controversial subject right what was the agency's policy at this point on body worn cameras so if you were in the narcotics unit and you didn't work off duty uh, you didn't have to have them uh, that was mainly for protection of, of some of the detectives that may have worked semi undercover stuff or plain clothes uh, but mainly it was for informant reasons because the cameras are open records and to get a civilian to be able to retract them correctly or, you know, block out certain parts. It was, um, it, it hadn't been fine tuned and they didn't want defense attorneys getting a hold of these cameras and diamond out the other, uh, uh, informants that were ratting their clients out. Um, a couple of the guys had them, the, the guy on the highway, he had it, didn't have it on. Um, and then a couple of guys that worked off duty had it. But they weren't, again, they weren't required to have them on at this time. So they may have had them, but they weren't required to be operating them at this time. Retrospectively. Oh, wish we'd have had it. I would, I would do anything to have that, that footage. Yeah, I, I think it, it's funny because you and I talked about this. And like when body-worn cameras first came out, I was not a fan. Not I, me either. I, I'm like, you know, this is just going to be used to put cops in jail. And, you know, everybody's going to Monday morning quarterback the event and all that. Um, you know, over the last 10 years as they become more in vogue, quickly realize in situations like this that 
it's never as bad as the plaintiff's attorney makes it out right, to be. Right. And no matter what the video is, uh, it's, it's better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wish, you know, if there's departments out there, that are on the fence, man, go for it. Because I think, I think there's some stat out there. This is like 90% of the complaints that come in when guys are wearing body worn cameras are, are debunked because, you know, the truth's right here on your shoulder. You can't, can't change the footage. Um, and people just lie. Or in their in their tense situations dealing with the police, maybe they construed a de- something totally different, kind of like you know the different statements of that night that that people saw through their lens different things than than what actually happened. Well, and even the, even the guys involved in the event, I mean, you guys all had kind of yeah. slightly different. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. When versions. Your however your body reacts physiologically, you know, is going to be different than the guy next to you. Yeah, yeah. You may have audio, auditory exclusion. You may have visual exclusion. Right. You may, you know, certainly you have tunnel vision. Yeah. Because, you know, it's terrifying. Um, let's, for, for a last topic, let's talk about the agency's response publicly. So there's a lot of kind of debate about transparency in law enforcement. And, um, you know, I've had several friends that are chiefs that have implemented very aggressive release policies where, where, you know, the body worn cameras released almost immediately. Mostly big agencies, LAPD, LA Sheriff have gone to that where it's like, here's what happened. Here's the body worn camera. Here's all the data we have. Um, it seemed to me that the approach taken by Louisville PD was to, to circle the wagons and hide. Right. Um, there was not a lot of public comment. There was very little, disclosure of information initially yeah even to even to brianna taylor's family they were frustrated because they could not get any answers either and i understand that i'd have been ticked off if i were them too uh, because they kept requesting the same stuff and maybe had had they been given the information or they could have diffused some of this because still they'd have been mad you know they'd have been sad they'd been tragic all that stuff but at the same time maybe that that deep anger that was put out and the emotions that kicked in with everybody. And I believe a lot of the people were thought they were doing the right thing, you know, as far as, as pushing back against the police, because again, at this point, nothing had been debunked. And, and just a couple months in the, the defense attorney or the, the, the defense civil attorney, um, had deposed the mayor. And instead of him going under oath and telling what happened, we are, we were all deposed, man, they grilled us for days. But then when it was his turn, they turn around and settle the case, you know, two days after they said they were going to depose him and settles it for $12 million, did not get the approval of city council. Anything over a million was supposed to get their approval, did it on a Sunday night when nobody knew it was going on. Um, so I can see from the outside looking in that, that we look guilty. You know, the city gives them 12 million bucks. They never say, no, it was the right house. They never said, no, she wasn't in her bed. They never say, no, he was already, he wasn't in custody. All these things. They never said any of this stuff. Instead, they let these rumors fly. Um, things were leaked from inside the department on one of the guys from a, a, uh, a sexual abuse complaint from 12, 10, 12 years earlier that was found that was, uh, he was cleared on and it was supposed to have been destroyed those after those records after two or three years and somebody leaked it to the press. And so that put mud on the case as well. That was never come out by the department and go, Oh, ho, ho, that he was cleared on that. There was nothing there. So all these little things kind of just, they just kept compounding and building up to the point where anybody from the outside looking in, even other police officers, even people in our own department didn't know the truth. And months later, 
And, you know, they're out there facing all these protesters and stuff, not knowing what they're fighting for. And so um, it, that was very frustrating. And, I mean, it made you want to beat your head on a wall because you knew the truth. You knew they had the truth. And, and for whatever reason, we talked earlier that, you know, they distance themselves because they don't want to take responsibility for it. If they can pawn it off on somebody down on a lower level, why not? And I think that's what took place here because the mayor had already had her on his platform saying we need justice for Breonna Taylor. And if I could fire the police, I would, but they're protected under law and, you know, all these things. So he had already dug his heels in the sand on what side he was going to be on and, and just was not going to put the truth out. And our chief at the time, and probably now, I'm sure it's hadn't changed, he didn't run the department. Everything went through the mayor's office. Every string that was pulled was by the deputy mayor and, and just a yes man, period. Yeah, and, and and at some point, you know, it's like we were talking about earlier. At some point, um, it is easier for the politicians to burn everybody in the incident. Yeah, you're just a number. No matter no matter what kind of work you've done over your career, no matter uh, no negativity, all that it doesn't matter if you're a liability to them at this point. Whether it's legit liability or just this made up, you know, uh, thing that happened they'll just cut you loose. They'll let you hang out to dry. Yeah. So if, if you were, and you are now teaching, you know, fortunately you went out, wrote a book, put your own story out there because it wasn't going to get out otherwise. But when you are interacting with young narcotics units and young cops, what, what is your counsel to them as to how not to end up? Man, it's, it's a lot of things like for years, and this was just kind of common practice, and, and we talked earlier about what common practice will get you, right? You know, if things, you get in this rut and things don't change, we don't develop, we don't, we don't continue to learn and, and, and make, evolve, then we're going to be in trouble. And that's kind of what happened here. We, we stuck to all the old plans of, here, you walk in, I know nothing about the case, here's this warrant, go serve it. So instead of sitting here and me going, hold on, pump the brakes, give me some background on this. Give me some more information on it. Let me dig into it myself a little bit. Didn't take place. And if you're putting your name on it, and maybe not on the warrant, but our name's on the on the catch sheet for, you know, for everything else after that warrant signed, then maybe you want to put a little bit of your own blood, sweat, and tears into it beforehand and not after the fact. Uh, because it's much easier to divert and avoid stuff than it is to to try to fix it. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's challenging because the, you know, you, you're working with people, you have to trust them. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I mean, we have federal charges filed against the three officers that, that got the warrant. Right. And, and part of the federal charges are that they falsified their, yeah. their affidavit and, and it was, lied. It was so unnecessary too, because the wording in the warrant said the, the postal inspector um, said that he, Jamarcus Glover was getting packages in his name. They didn't need that. They've got him on video going in empty-handed, coming out with those boxes, going straight to the trap house. All they had to do was take a little bit of extra time and explain how this works in the narcotics world, and it's the same probable cause, if not even stronger. Because who's to say he's not getting shoes through the mail there? Yeah. You know, we don't know. And and they don't know what he got to that day. But at least that puts him in a category of this is the, the typical way narcotics dealers do things, and this is what he did. That, with all the other information, would have been would have been strong enough and I don't know if lack of experience, because again, you had these guys who one guy in that whole unit had done warrants. The rest of them had been jump out people in a different platoon that when they, when they created this unit, pulled them over. 
And now you've got them doing a three-month investigation with five warrants and pole cams and trackers. Man, they're probably barely keeping their head above water, to be honest. I mean, this is all new to them. Yeah. And you're throwing this on them. And then at the same time, you've got the mayor's office coming in every week with three of the people from the, the chief's office getting updates on this case. There's a little pressure to get something done. So then you've got these younger detectives going, well, let's make this warrant sound really good because what's it going to matter, right? Who's going who's gonna to know or what's going to hurt? Well, it's one of those things that, you know, when the veil's uncovered and you got this lie, it makes everything look bad. And, and between, between that and the shots coming in from outside and the, and the statements from the, the 10 year old, uh, sexual assault, all those things put together, they spun it in a way that made us look like the most corrupt cops, you know, in America. Well, and, and you're falling into a time, you know, between, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and, and George Floyd, where we're looking for that. Right. right? White, like white people are the devil hunting down black well, and, people. Yeah. And cops, right? Like yeah. it's, it's, we, we. Obviously, at that point, defund police is, is a thing, and we are right in the middle of an election cycle. Yeah, absolutely. There's zero politician on either side that's going to stand up for you. Yeah. You know, I reached out to both of my senators, both Republicans. Both of them were like, nope, sorry, good luck. Yeah. You're on your own. Yeah, at some point, you're so toxic that they can't touch yeah. you. Right. It's just, it isn't worth the political risk to right. them. Is there anything else you think that, that guys listening, I mean, obviously, we talked about training, we talked about kind of prep. Is there anything else that you think that guys need? Yeah, to just complacency. It's so easy, man. When you when you do this repeatedly, and this this is anything in life, I don't care what it is, you get just somewhat complacent, and you've got to be your own barometer and self check or your buddies. You know, we talk about checking on your buddies for mental health, and if you see them drinking or you see them going astray, whatever, check them. It's no different here, and that's why probably debriefs are so important because that does kind of refocus you every time you do an op. Instead of coming in and, all right, good, let's go have dinner, you know, and then we move on to the next one. And then we may repeat the same mistake over and over and over. It never gets corrected. Um, but then when things do go right 2,000 times, you don't expect them to go wrong on this easy one. Yeah. And and they just do because you do let your guard down some. You just can't, it's, it's human nature. One in the end, there is no easy one. That's true. Just right. like there's no there's no uh, routine call. Yeah, yeah. In the same way, there's no routine call. There is no easy one. I think, you know, I, I'm so appreciative you came and sat down with me. And, and I, I think, you know, the, the I wrote an article a while back on a, a police shooting. And I said, you know, just because a tragedy occurs doesn't mean an injustice does. Right. And and in, in this case, certainly Breonna Taylor deserved better than she got. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what the federal court system has to say about you know, the warrant and, and what took place afterwards. But uh, I was talking to somebody recently about this and I said, the great irony of the Breonna Taylor case is that the two guys that shot Breonna Taylor were the only ones that were acting constitutionally. Right. And, and to me, that is the tragedy of this is, is in the end, you're, you're an arc sergeant doing your job and you got run over by a national train. And, and I'm sorry for that. I appreciate it. Real quick, one of the other things that I tell these guys when I talk is you've got to be your own voice. You've got to fight for yourself harder than anybody else because nobody's going to fight for you like you will. Because so many times here on the street, what are we willing to do? You hear the gunfire, you run toward it. You're willing to fight people for your partner. You're willing to take a bullet for a stranger. But then when you're off the job and they come at you like they did us, what do most cops do? They just cower down. They don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, they just, they just go into turtle mode and, and you just take that beating. 
And at some point, and, and preferably early on, even if you've got the gag order on you like we did, there's ways to get stuff out. You got to be creative and think outside the box and get it out there because the city's not going to do it for you. Your department may not do it for you. Some will, some won't. Um, your upper chain of command probably really won't because they got to worry about their own jobs. So you've got to figure out ways to fight for yourself and, and get, get the truth out. And it's not easy. And people will ridicule. I've taken so much ridicule and hate and, and people have told me, look, man, just, just disappear. Just go away. And I'm like, no, it's not about me anymore. My stuff's done. You know, Kenneth Walker's not getting charged. I'm not getting any money. This, you know, I've had to move. I've lost money. I've, I've downgraded everything that whatever I'm over that. That's in the past. But now there's all these cops coming after me that, like you said, could be me next week. It doesn't matter if you're patrol, if you're SWAT, if you're narcotics. We're all making runs that could potentially, in a brief second, flip into something that could be national news. And you're not prepared for it. I don't care how much you think you're prepared for it. You're just not. And so, you know, get out there and and just fight for yourself. Love that. I think that's a great place for us to stop. John, thank you so much for doing this, buddy. Man, thanks, John. Appreciate it.